Some of you may be surprised to learn that I was in a fraternity in college. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. 35 plus guys, we did just about everything together. We ate together, we studied together, we partied together, and uh, we would wake up the next morning and do the same thing over again. And that was our life. And one of the things we loved to do together was play intramural sports. We had a, a very capable, a very good basketball team, which I did not play on for reasons that may be obvious to you. And we also had a horrible soccer team, which I did play on and uh, actually helped to captain. Every year it was not difficult for us to recruit members to the basketball team because they won a lot, like they won championships almost every year. And every year it was difficult for us to recruit members to the soccer team because we would lose a lot, like almost every single game. And not only did we lose every single game, we were ridiculed, we were mocked, we were scorned by other teams. I mean, they held us in contempt, and they would make fun of us constantly. So you join my soccer team, you will not only lose excessively, but you will be mocked constantly. Now, who wants to sign up for that? Now, what if I told you that when you become a disciple of Jesus, you sign up to lose? When you decide to join God's church, when you decide to line up behind Captain Jesus, you are signing up for some losses. You sign up for some mocking and rejection and contempt and scorn. That's part of what it means to be in the family of God. So let's just say just for a moment, let's accept that fact. You sign up for Team Jesus, you sign up for some losses. Here's my question. Is it possible then, as a Christian, to suffer successfully? Is it possible to suffer successfully as a Christian? Now, I know that sounds kind of uh, strange, suffer successfully. It, It sounds backwards, because in the world's economy, to suffer may mean failure, certainly means pain. In the world's economy, success means the absence of failure and the absence of pain. But what about in God's economy? How does God think about his people suffering for him? For the last few months, we've been studying the book of 1 Peter, and the apostle Peter in this letter, he he writes this letter to a bunch of Gentile Christians or non-Jewish Christians who are in modern-day Turkey. They lived in this pluralistic world, a world that um, advocated for religious diversity. So lots and lots of pagan gods to worship, including the emperor. It was an interesting time where civic and religious duties were intertwined. So saying no to pagan worship or saying no to emperor worship would be looked upon with suspicion. You know, it would be something like if someone today refused to celebrate MLK Day. We would find that strange. We'd look upon that person with suspicion. So Peter's readers, they became Christians. They got behind Captain Jesus. They started to abandon their former lifestyle and this pagan worship, and they started to lose. They were looked upon with suspicion. So First Peter is written to encourage them. 
Peter encourages them with the message that this isn't your home. You are chosen by God, but this isn't your home. You are exiles, and your home is elsewhere. In chapters 1 and 2, Peter calls them to live holy lives. Remember this, to love, to submit to the authorities, to do good deeds. And some people outside the church would be drawn to this, this beautiful, loving community because of their love. But other people would be repelled. Other people would be angry. Other people would push these Christians away, and they would suffer. And it's this latter group, these suffering Christians, that Peter addresses in our passage. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. It's page 1,203 in your pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. What does Peter say to those who have joined team Jesus and who are losing? That's what we see in this passage. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will it become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning and we want to hear from you. And so would you open up our hearts, help us to understand this passage, help us to see the beauty of the truths in this passage, and especially help us to apply it to our lives, Lord, today and this week. Would you encourage us? Would you exhort us? Would you change us so that we look more like your son, Jesus? Use your word, Father. Fill us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter says four things to suffering Christians in this passage. The first thing is, verse 12, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Suffering shouldn't surprise Christians. Most people consider suffering and difficulties as abnormal, something to be avoided, right? If they can't be avoided, then they should be dealt with quickly so that normal life can then resume. But what if the new normal life for a Christian is suffering? What if that's the new normal? There's two places where suffering is not normal. In the past, the Garden of Eden. In the future, heaven. But every other place, every other moment between the Garden of Eden and heaven, Christians, God's people, must expect to suffer simply for being God's people. Listen to some of the things Jesus told his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble, John sixteen thirty three. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. John chapter 15, verse 18. The Apostle Paul said similar things. Listen to this. This is 2 Timothy 3. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's strong language. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Peter's first century readers, they needed to hear this message because when they said yes to Jesus, they immediately became cultural outsiders. They once were cultural insiders. They once blended in nicely with the Greco-Roman society around them. But saying yes to Jesus meant saying no to some societal practices. In other words, it was a huge 180-degree turn for them. Now, we may think in the 21st century things are very different because, hey, America is all about religious freedom, and that should preserve Christianity and the expression of Christianity that we have. But the times are changing. We live in a post-Christian world. You know, there was a time maybe 40 or 50 years ago where it was socially advantageous to be a Christian. If you wanted to, uh, you know, kind of advance in life, it was good to be a Christian. You know, um, Dwight Eisenhower, when he became president in the 60s, it was strange that he wasn't a member of a Christian church. In fact, within a few months of becoming president, he joined a local church, probably because of the pressure that he was feeling from us, from the people. Well, today, nobody really cares if our president is part of a local church. Being a Christian isn't really socially advantageous anymore. In fact, I would say it's becoming a liability. I wonder, is that how you feel? What is it like for you to be a Christian on the South Shore of Boston? Do you feel like a stranger? Do you feel like an alien? Do you feel like an exile? If you keep holding on to Christ, I think in the next 5, 10, 15 years, you're going to feel more and more like an exile. Our world today is different. You know, from Christian school teachers that can say only specific things in the public school to whether campus ministries can, can, um, can remain active on certain college campuses to what discipline a mom can exercise in her own home. These things are being evaluated, and it catches us by surprise. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Expect this. This is the new normal. This is what happens when you join Team Jesus. Maybe you're not yet a Christian, and you're hearing these words, and uh, you're kind of, man, this is, this is hard stuff. Is this what it means to be a Christian? Well, I want you to hear something very clearly. Saying yes to Jesus comes with a price. Saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to being a cultural outsider, probably for the rest of your life. In the eyes of much of the world, you will be joining the losing team, and you're going ha- to have to be okay with that. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor, you're supposed to tell me how great it is to be a Christian. You're supposed to try to convince me and persuade me about the beauty and the glory and the the blessing of walking with Christ. What about that stuff? Well, absolutely. It It is a wonderful thing to be a 
Christian. There's forgiveness of sins. There's new life in Jesus. There's unbelievable joy and peace and love. There's a church family like this that you can get inside and you can find a place to belong. But becoming a Christian also means you give Jesus your total and unconditional allegiance. And that means you're going to take some hits. So you've got to count the cost. I don't want you to be deceived by that. I want you to know there's a cost to becoming a Christian. I also want you to know that it's absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Because at the top of the list of the things that you get when you become a Christian is Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. You get to know Jesus. You get to enjoy Jesus. You get to walk with Jesus day in and day out. And so as you stack up those losses and as you stack up those gains, there's no comparison. So it's worth it. So the first thing we see here in verse 12, do not be surprised at your suffering. The second thing we see in verse 13, let's read verse 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised, says Peter, but rejoice. Rejoice. Apparently there's joy to be found when Christians suffer for Jesus. Doesn't Peter know that people through the centuries are going to suffer and suffer and suffer? People through the centuries are going to have cancer. People through the centuries are going to be lynched for, uh, you know, by the KKK. People through the centuries are going to be decapitated on the beaches of the Middle East for their faith. Is Peter totally out of step with reality? Is Peter totally callous to the human suffering and pain? No, he's not. Let's look closely at his reason for saying that Christians should rejoice. Look again in verse 13. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Another translation says, rejoice that you can share in the sufferings of Christ. Peter's talking about the doctrine of union with Christ. What is union with Christ? Well, when Christians receive the good news about Jesus with faith, they are united to Christ. There's this mysterious, powerful joining together of the believer to Christ. And union with Christ, it means a lot of things, but one thing that it means is that Jesus' story and Jesus' destiny become our story and our destiny. Let me say that again because it's really important. Jesus' story... Jesus' destiny becomes our story and our destiny. So what is Jesus' story? Well, it could be summarized like this. Three words. Suffering, then glory. That's Jesus' story, right? Or you could say it this way. Cross, and then crown. Think about Jesus' life. When he was born, it was marked by humiliation. And as he grew and grew and grew, it was marked by misrepresentation and rejection. And that's even before he got to the cross. The cross was really the culmination of a life of suffering and humiliation and rejection. That's what Jesus got for 33 years. His life was marked by suffering. And then he died this painful, brutal death on the cross. 
And then he was buried. He was under the ground for three days. But then he rose from the dead. But not only did he rise from the dead, he rose from the dead in victory over evil, in victory over sin, in victory over death. And not only that, but Jesus today is sitting at the right hand of God in power and in glory. Even though that power and glory is hidden. And not only that, but Jesus will one day come back in such a way where his hidden majesty, his hidden rule is going to go public. This is Jesus' story. Suffering, then glory. Cross, then crown. And this is our story too. That's what Peter means when he says we participate in the sufferings of Christ. We can say it this way. When you join Team Jesus, you get what Jesus got. First, you get the cross. We see this elsewhere in 1 Peter. Turn back to chapter 2. Flip back one page to chapter 2, verse 21. Peter says, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So we follow in Christ's footsteps. We are called to the cross. But it's not just the suffering part we get, we also get the glory part. Notice verse 13 again, also Uh, It also says that if we participate in Christ's sufferings, we will be overjoyed when Jesus comes back in glory. So when Jesus' hidden majesty goes public at the end of time, we too are going to be caught up in that glory. We too will be glorified, in other words. We too will share in Jesus' triumph and in his victory. This is our great hope, brothers and sisters, when we suffer. Suffering now, yes, but glory is coming. We pick up our crosses daily, our little crosses every day. We pick them up, yes, but one day we're going to pick up a crown with Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, whose steps are you following in? Who do you line up behind? Have you lined yourself up behind your very successful boss? Have you lined yourself up behind another mom you are envious of? You're a student. Have you lined yourself up behind a popular kid in your classroom? Is that who you're trying to follow? Maybe you're following the footsteps of your successful father or your brilliant older sister or someone else that you admire. Brothers and sisters, set those um, good admirations to aside for just a moment because there is someone better to follow after. And what story have you embraced for yourself? Is your story one of power and fame? Is is your story about money and career and possessions? Is your story about sex and and hedonistic pleasures and, and living for the next vacation? Is that your story? Or maybe you have a different story. Maybe your story is one of shame and guilt. Maybe your story is one of the abuser or the addict or the criminal. Maybe someone has told you that you're worthless, that you don't matter. And the story you tell yourself every single day, the thoughts that run through your mind every single day, such you are a mess, you don't matter, you will never get your act together. Brothers and sisters, if you have united yourself with Jesus through faith, you have a different story. 
It's not the story of worldly success. It's not the story of worldly failure. It's the story of the cross. And it's the story of the crown. That's your story. And it's this new story that must define you. It's this new story that you must identify with so closely more than any other story. This is one of the secrets, I believe, to the sustained, to, to sustained joy in the midst of suffering. Because when you begin to internalize this story, when you realize that you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you can share in his glory one day, you will find joy. You will find hope. You will find the resources that you need to walk with him. So first of all, don't be surprised by suffering. Second of all, rejoice. And then uh, third, don't be ashamed. Verses 14 through 16, don't be ashamed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, verse 14, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear that name. So in these verses, we get a sense of the nature of, uh, of the suffering that these people were going through. It wasn't necessarily physical abuse. It was verbal assaults. Verse 14 says insults. Peter reminds them that there's no honor in suffering when you violate good moral laws. There's no honor in suffering when you sin, but there is honor when you suffer for Jesus. That's the main idea in these verses. There's a badge of honor for Christians who suffer for Jesus. Now notice verse 16 again. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Early Christians didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves disciples or brothers and sisters or um, those who follow the way or belong to the way. The name Christian was given to them by outsiders, and so it was, uh, it was a derogatory term. It was, uh, it was used to, to make fun of Christians. It was used to shame Christians. It was used to mock Christians. You know, it's like calling a Christian today a fundy, a fundamentalist, or uh, Ned Flanders, or, um, you know, a Bible thumper. I was called a Bible thumper in my uh, fraternity. It's awful. Or a, a narrow-minded bigot. These are shameful names. We don't want to hear these names. They, they heap up shame. They heap up disgrace on us. But Peter is turning the culture's shame on its head. He's saying that in God's economy, Christians should feel honor and not shame in those very moments. In verse 14, he says that instead of shame, we ought to feel blessed because we know the Spirit is working in us. The Spirit is upon us. You know, this reminds me of what we... Uh, what we saw in Acts chapter 5 when, uh, when the disciples, they left the Jewish councils who were abusing them. Listen to what the narrator says. Acts chapter 5, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It's incredible. I mean, think about that. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were clergymen. They were bishops, in fact, and uh, they were bishops 
during the reign of Mary I in 16th century England. And uh, they were brought before the governing authorities, and they were asked to denounce their faith in Jesus Christ. But they refused, along with several other people. And so they were tied to a post, and, and, and wood and oil were brought and, and positioned around them. And they were about to be burned by the stake. And then Latimer turns to Ridley in a moment of clarity, and he says to, the, says to Ridley these words, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Somehow, on this day of their deaths, Ridley found honor and not shame in that moment. He counted it worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And you might be thinking, where's the honor in this story? Well, here's the honor. I'm telling you the story. I'm telling you about Ridley and Latimer. Their candle is still burning today here in America. There's honor where there's shame. You know, for most of us, taking a stand for Jesus doesn't look this dramatic. There's lots of stories we can tell. You know, go home and, and, and Google Helen Rosevere. Go home and Google uh, Jim Elliott, um, uh, Richard Wormbrandt. All of these people suffered disgrace for Jesus, and their stories are unbelievable. But for most of us, taking a stand for Jesus doesn't look like their stories. But I do think every day we are called to make little stands for Jesus. You may have to avoid certain office conversations and may end up getting teased as a result. You may uh, find yourself alone in your apartment because you're trying to avoid certain extracurricular activities. Maybe your kids call you old-fashioned because of your particular convictions. Maybe some people don't invite you to their neighborhood parties because they're suspicious of you. How do we deal with this? Well, brothers and sisters, Peter's telling us, and God, I believe, is telling us this morning, do not be ashamed. Learn to find honor in these moments of disgrace. Count it worthy that you suffer disgrace for Jesus. You know, I think it's a re-scripting, a reprogramming of how we think about honor and how we think about shame. But for Christians, this is vital if we're going to persevere through suffering. Point number four, you see this in verses 17 and 18, recognize God's refining purposes. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is a little confusing. These verses are a little odd. And what does it mean that judgment begins with the family of God? What's behind Peter's thinking here is Malachi chapter 3, 1 through 5. We're not going to turn there. You can maybe look at it later. But here's the picture in Malachi, okay? God is bringing a refining fire to his people at the temple. Okay, that's what's going on. And these same refining fires are what will consume the ungodly. So here's Peter's logic in verses 17 and 18. Just like the Lord comes to the temple to purify his people and judge the ungodly, God is using your present sufferings to purify you and to eventually judge the ungodly. That's the logic behind Peter's thinking. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, here's the first thing. 
Suffering is God's refining and pruning work in our lives. Just like refining fire burns away the dross off certain metals, so God's refining fires of judgment purify God's people. And uh, we know fire can be painful. The surgeon's scalpel, even though we know it's necessary, it can be painful. The pruning blade can be painful as God cuts off parts of us which are dead or damaged or impaired. He burns away our counterfeit loves and our false idols. You know, like a good surgeon, he carefully uses his scalpel to cut away cancerous diseases in our souls. The disease of our self-absorption, the disease of our preoccupation with money and power. He's slowly through suffering cutting these things away. Our pride, our fascination with sinful pleasures, our tendency to isolate, our hatred, our envy. Slowly, God is cutting away these things from our lives. But here's the deal. God is a loving surgeon, isn't he? He's a loving pruner. He does these things out of love for us. So you see, God's design for suffering isn't to destroy us. That's Satan's purpose for suffering. God's purpose is to save us. His purpose is to grow us. His purpose is to purify us. And so suffering that God ordains shouldn't be avoided. It actually should be patiently endured and embraced. When Pastor Jeremy and I and uh, Blaine went to Dubai, May 2014, we met an Iranian Christian man. And uh, this man had been kicked out of his country uh, because he was a Christian. And uh, the, the, the police, the secret police in Iran actually uh, kind of had his name on a list and he was being hunted. And so he, he left Iran and he, he sought solace in Dubai. It was an incredible, painful time for him and his family, as you can imagine. But he embraced his suffering that God had ordained and he began to grow. He began to grow. And, and when we met this man, he was a church intern. He was a church planting trainee. And here's, here's the incredible vision that God gave this guy. Because he couldn't go back to his country. God gave him this vision of raising up a Farsi-speaking church in Dubai because there were thousands of Iranians in Dubai. So God gave him this vision of raising up a Farsi-speaking church in Dubai. And in doing that, he wanted to train up the next generation of pastors and church planners who could go back to his home country and feel the freedom to plant churches and share the gospel. I mean, that's a man who recognized God's refining and redemptive purposes in suffering. He recognized them and it strengthened him to keep going. Suffering isn't only a pruning work. Suffering also proves that you are one of Jesus' sheep. It separates the wheat from the chaff. It separates the goats from the sheep. It proves that you're the real deal. You know, it, it weeds out the posers. When I was in high school, I was a poser. I went to a Christian school, and uh, everybody kind of looked around and assumed that since you're at this school, you're a Christian. And then I went to a large public institution, the University of Michigan, and all of a sudden I'm in a very different environment where it's difficult to be a Christian. And so as I began to take on the label of Christian, I began to suffer a little bit. And then I realized all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I'm a poser. I'm not really a Christian. It's because of suffering that came into my life. 
And I had to decide which way am I going to go. In this polarizing environment that I lived in on this large public institution's campus, am I going to follow Jesus or not? Am I going to suffer with him or am I going to compromise and walk away from him? Well, by God's grace, he grabbed a hold of my life and he pushed me towards Christ. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, then this passage, these verses in particular, are a warning to you. The fires that purify God's saints today will consume those who are God's enemies in the future. Do you hear that? And you may avoid suffering now if you walk away from Jesus, but what will it cost you in the end? As Spurgeon once said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were cross bearers here on earth. So let me plead with you if that's who you are and if that's where you find yourself Today, find deliverance in Jesus. He is the only shelter from the coming storm. You know, perhaps God is working in your heart right now. Uh, Perhaps he's helping you to reach out to Christ in faith. If that's the case, would you do that? Would you repent and believe today? Would you make Jesus' story your story today? So what can you do when you suffer for Jesus? Don't be surprised. Rejoice, don't be ashamed, recognize God's refining purposes. And then we get to verse 19, which is really kind of a conclusion. So then, Peter says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So here's kind of a summary statement of our passage, or maybe the conclusion that he comes to. I don't know about you, but I find myself often failing to suffer successfully. It's interesting to think about the person who wrote this, Peter. He failed to suffer successfully for Jesus. Do you remember on that same night when Jesus was held uh, captive and he was before the Sanhedrin and they were, they were calling him out as a blasphemer because he had just declared, I am the son of man. On that same night, Peter is standing outside, maybe in the same moment, standing there in the courtyard and he denied Jesus three times to some servants and slaves. Maybe you failed to suffer for Jesus too. Maybe you and I, we feel like we've denied Jesus like Peter did. Maybe you've experienced shame and it's kind of stifled your courage for Christ. What do you do if you failed in this way? Well, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus because he suffered successfully. Notice the words in in, in verse 19, commit yourself to God. These are the same words, interestingly enough, that Jesus said when he died. It was his last words. Do you remember this? It's the same word there. Commit into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so what I think Peter's doing here is he's drawing from Jesus' example. He's saying, commit yourself to God when you suffer, just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus did. Jesus was the one who wasn't surprised by the fiery trial. Jesus was the one who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And Jesus, in the very last moments of his life, as a really capstone of his entire life, he declared publicly, my life is not my own, it is my Father's. And on your deathbed, what are you going to be thinking? On your deathbed, perhaps 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years from now, do you think you're going to have a regret for one second? Do you think you're going to regret 
you know, maybe the little shame, the, the mocking that you would have received because of your love for Jesus? Do you think on your deathbed you will wish you could have had some relief and comfort for 70 or 80 years with the cost of having eternal suffering for ages and ages to come? I don't, I don't think so. I, you may have some regrets at that moment, but you're not going to regret the disgrace that you bear for Jesus as a follower of Christ. You will, in that moment, I, I believe, count yourself worthy to have joined Team Jesus. You will count yourself worthy and blessed and honored to have suffered for the name of Jesus. Because, just like Jesus, glory is coming. Let's pray. Father, our eyes are upon the south shore, Lord, as we think about this passage. We think about those who don't know Jesus here on the south shore, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. And Lord, we long to see them know Jesus. We know that you use suffering, Lord. Suffering is, is a vehicle that you use to declare the gospel, to point to Christ and to point those who don't know you to Jesus. And so we pray that you would teach us to suffer well for Jesus. Would you teach us to bear disgrace, to bear shame, to absorb little, little moments of persecution so that Jesus will be honored, so that Jesus will be found worthy in our lives. Would you help us to do that, not for our own sake, but really for the, for the sake of the gospel going forth on the South Shore? We long, Father, for more and more people to know Jesus here. So use our suffering, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.